Well, this morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles want to go ahead and turn there, it's going to be chapter 4. I'm going to pick it up uh, in verse 22. We're going to go all the way to uh, verse 32 here. But if you are joining us the first time or maybe the first time in a little while, uh, the word of really the beginning of the year, we're not going to keep, keep going and talking about it every single week for the whole year, but really the word of the year we've been talking about is oneness. And that's what we've been praying for, uh, not only on a national level in the middle of so many divisions and divisiveness and anger and things of that nature, but uh, on a big C church level, that there would be oneness in the church, that God would be glorified in the way that we're able to unite, we're able to have unity and fellowship with one another in the context of your marriages, all right, if you are married, that you would have oneness in the home. This is one of the things uh, we've heard a lot from our church, and it's not just DBC, but nationally, we know that there's a lot of tension going on in many marriages at home, given the craziness of this past year and how it overflows into the home. And we're talking about it in the context of interpersonal relationships. You may not be married. It could be friendships. It could be the context of your family members or whoever it may be. But this is a word that we're focusing on that God would, what would make us one is he's already done so theologically. And so this is the argument that Paul makes uh, in, in Ephesians. If you're a note taker, you want to write it maybe at some point in your Bible or something, you can write the word oneness or uh, synonym it would be unity or anything there. This is the point of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And that's what this is. This is a letter Paul writes from Rome while he's in prison somewhere around 62 AD in the first century here. And he's writing to the church in Ephesus all about oneness and unity. This is a divided church in a lot of ways. Uh, their natural fellowship isn't going to come easy. They're Jews and Gentiles, very different cultural backgrounds, all being brought together in a brand new church when Jews had kind of typically had um, the onus on, or the, the weight of religious responsibility growing up. And it's an intersection of different backgrounds. And he's saying there is a oneness here because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the kind of the theme that plays throughout. Verse chapter 4 at the beginning, he says this. He says, there is one body, there is one spirit, there, just as you were also called in one hope and one calling, one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so as we're reading Ephesians, like this is the context of that letter. And so he gets really specific with it here at the end of chapter four, and he puts it in the context of anger, right? Like how in the world do we have oneness when what you may be feeling right now, it feels like a righteous anger, right? How do you have oneness? And there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of dissension culturally. There's a lot of stuff going on out there. How do you have oneness in a fellowship of believers that's very diverse? How do you have oneness in your home when what you're feeling inside, as Zane was talking about a minute ago, it feels like a righteous anger? In the context of marriage, it feels like what you're fighting for, what you're holding on to is right, and it's good, Right, in the context of friendships, maybe you're on social media, whatever else, like you're seeing friends or maybe it's that, that uncle or aunt or whoever else, somebody in your family, they're posting things online and you're sitting there going, oh gosh, what, they really think like that? Whatever that may be, right? But they think like that? Like how do you have oneness in that kind of a context? You're related to them, you're supposed to have this fellowship. How do you have context in the, in the or how do you have oneness in the context of a church that, that believes different things out there, right, right? Like how do you have oneness when what you're feeling inside, it feels like a righteous anger? This is what Paul gets really specific about at the end of chapter four. And I wanna jump into this because as Zane talked about, you know, this is something that's gonna hit us quite a bit in a number of different ways. And so um, here's what he says beginning in verse 22. He says, in regard to your former way of life before Jesus Christ, you were taught to put off the old self, which is still being corrupted in its deceitful desires. 
to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a brand new self created to be like God in true righteousness and in true holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. And so this is that oneness metaphor. He keeps coming back, and this is in a number of his different epistles here, but he says we are one body. This is what God has done for us theologically in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's brought different people, different backgrounds. He's made us one body. It's a beautiful image here. Christ is the head of this body. Uh, you and I are different members of the exact same body. And so some of you are going to be like arms and legs and hands and feet and noses and eyes and ears and ligaments and muscles and whatever it may be. Like there's a number of different things going on there. And we're going to be a very diverse kind of a body. We're going to think differently. We're going to have different gifts and we're going to have different passions and different levels and different places of uh, really strengths along the way. And so some of us are going to be uh, people that have more compassion than other people. And some people are going to be more heavy handed on the conviction and truth side of things, right? And you're going to see these differences all around a body of believers, maybe even in your home, different personality spectrums. You're going to be like nine different numbers on an Enneagram scale or whatever it may be, but you see these differences play out. Some people are going to be more thinking, on, more on the thinking end of things, and some are going to be more on the feeling end of things. Um, some are going to have more generosity than others, and, more, and then some people are going to be more sensitive to people's needs. And uh, I heard one pastor a little while ago say that you, you, you can see this thing play out in the, in the metaphor of baptism, how you're dying to self and being raised in newness of life in Christ. And he's like, some people identify more with the death to self, the lament of the pain of the world, if you will. They're, they're more ready to enter into pain and lament and injustice and brokenness in the world and other people don't want anything to do with that, and they want to move forward into the victory, or the, the, the newness of life that's found there in Jesus Christ, right? And, and we can be heavy-handed. We, uh, we, we, we can be one or the other in a lot of different ways. And so what Paul's saying right here is like, this is the complexity, and this is the beauty of the body of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying right here is that every single member is essential to the health of a flourishing body. And in that context, he gives us this admonition. He says this, speak truth to one another. Speak truth to one another. As followers of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through him. As proponents of truth, people who have the truth of God's word, that he has given you and me the entirety of the world, who has access to a Bible, he's given you the truth of his word. As representatives of him, who is the truth, make sure that you're a people of truth, not a people of speculation, not a people of relative truth. Hey, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. I was at the show this past week, and the guy was just talking about, man, this is beautiful. I love your truth, man. I love your truth. And like, we're not talking about, we're not talking about a relative truth or anything here. Make sure that you're a people of truth, not a people of slanderous gossip, not lies, not empty philosophies that contradict the truth of God's word. Not shifting human opinions as they change and transition from one generation to the next. Make sure that you are a people of truth. Here it is, especially in the context of anger or whatever conflict that you may be in. Otherwise, there will not be oneness there because oneness comes under the banner of truth. And so he's highlighting this thing right here. And he says, theologically, again, he's made us one in Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 24, put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and in true holiness. In other words, if you come to a conflict simply to win a war or to win a battle or something like that, or to preserve your pride, what you think of your, your own dignity or anything like that, then you might get submission as a result. You could get coexistence as a result. But you won't get oneness in the end. 
Uh, I was reading uh, some stories of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, not Dr. King. Uh, but you know that his story, obviously, is one going through a lot of opposition. But God used him to bring uh, protest, Protestant reformation to a church that was one way for the longest time. You can imagine the amount of opposition he had, the amount of incident. And he talks about a lot how, how much insecurity he had that he was actually fighting for the truth. And you can imagine like when the entirety of, of Christianity at that time is fighting against you and they're saying things like, hey, you're a dissenter. They're calling him an agitator. They're calling him a heretic and things like that. You go back into the, into the dark recesses of your mind and you begin to question these things. But what I love about what Luther does is he always, he did hold it open. And so what he's doing is he's going to the truth of God's word and he's saying, no, 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 no. Salvation really is by God's grace through faith. It's right here in the truth of God's word. And he would take these convictions that he had about the truth of his word, and he would come and he would take, he would take them before this uh, trusted group of other believers around him. He would say, hey, check me. Check me. Is this true according to God's word? Am I, am I going crazy? Am I really a heretic? Am I really an agitator here? And then he would take not only this conversation with some trusted advisors, but he would bring it before the Lord and he would say, Father, like, search me, O oh God. See if there's any deceitful way in me. Like, Father, am I, am, I, am I being deceived by the enemy in this thing over here? Am I being deceived in this? And so he would bring it before them and say, I want to know the truth. And it's exactly what Paul is saying right here. Make sure that you're a people of truth. And what this means is you could be on the wrong side of truth. And it means that in the, any given moment, like, it's not a binary thing where you're either all right, all wrong. There could be in whatever conflict may be in the home, culturally, interpersonal relationships. It could be that, yeah, you're standing on truth, and yet in these ways over here and in these sidebars, you could be walking in untruth. In the context of marriage, um, Gary Thomas talks about the wisdom of taking an agreed-upon break in an argument so that you can discern what's actually true in that moment. And key word being an agreed upon. It's not storm out saying, hey, I need time, I need space. It's saying an agreed upon break in the middle of a conflict. Again, apply this wherever it may be. It could be marriage. It could be outside of that. But to take an agreed upon break to come back and say, okay, Father, what are we talking about here again? Uh, have we started deviating? Have we gone to all kinds of um, slanderous misrepresentations? Have we gone to all kinds of untruth? What is the actual truth that's going on here, including feelings that could have been hurt? Like what's actually been take, what's actually taking place right here? And what he says is in the context of that, the Holy Spirit could be revealing things to you that are going to come back and help you be reconciled with the person you're in conflict with. And so the first thing he says is exactly what Paul's saying, like oneness comes under the banner of truth. And as people of truth, we have to be willing to say, you know what, it, 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 I am fully committed to the truth. And that means that um, it could be possible that I'm not walking fully in truth right now. And that you do the work of introspecting and come back and say, okay, God, first and foremost, this is the banner that I want to walk under. God, show me what is true. And so a people of truth have to consider the possibility that whatever that righteous anger may be that I'm feeling in that moment, it may not be 100% righteous. And so that's the first concern that Paul has right here. And he comes in, he says, hey, are you speaking truth? Speak truthfully to one another. No, not falsehood. Not like, hey, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I've heard. But speak truth to one another. And he keeps going in verse 26. And then he says, in your anger, do not sin. And he starts getting more specific from here on out. But he says, in your anger, do not sin. In other words, like there's a way to be angry that leads to oneness and there's a way to be angry that leads to disunity, harm, and all kinds of sin. This is the difference that Paul is talking about right here. There's a way to be angry. There's a way to be right that isn't fully right. 
right? There's a way to be angry that one way goes into sin and results in that, and another one actually is a righteous anger. And he says, make sure that you can discern the difference. Make sure that you can tell the difference. In your anger, do not sin. By the way, this is exactly what Paul, uh, sorry, Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. But he begins, the entire sermon is given to a mixed bag of people that are following him around there. And he's saying every step of the way, don't just look at your external behavior. Make sure that you're examining what's going on inside of the heart. Every step of the way. And so he says things like, uh, you've heard it said you should not murder. Remember this, Matthew 5, 21? I'm telling you, anyone who's angry with your brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to them, rakah, or you fool, um, could be in danger of the fires of hell. And so he's using very extreme language here. And if you don't understand the context, it could be very, very alarming. The reason it's not, it is alarming, but the reason it's not condemning in the, in the context of this entire sermon is because Jesus says, before this, he says, you've heard it said, um, no, 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 he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, he says, uh, I didn't come to minimize it, I didn't come to lower the bar of the law so that it's just so low, everybody in the world is like, like there is no holiness, I didn't come to abolish the law or anything like that, I came to fulfill it. And so from that place of security, Jesus preaches this message, and it's all about really, hey, you are safe and secure. I came to fulfill the law for you. Nevertheless, from that place of security, you need to know what holiness looks like. Go and be holy because I am holy. Here's what holiness looks like. It is a much higher bar than you ever expected. And so he says things like, I'm glad you haven't killed anybody yet. Praise God, you you, you check that box off your list, but I want to know why you're so angry. Like, I want to know, like, what's the fury that's building up in your heart? Like, beyond the fact you haven't done the deed, I want to know why you want to do the deed. I want you to examine what's going on inside of your heart. Like, that's what I want to know. What's going on inside of you that's spurring on such unbelievable animosity, anger, dissension, wrath, malice, and all the different things over there? It's the same thing in verse 27. He says, you've heard it said you shouldn't commit adultery. Praise God you haven't gone that far yet or you haven't done that thing yet. But he says, beyond that, like, I want, you to, I want you to pay attention to the lust that is so normative in our culture today. Like, I, I want you to pay attention to what's going on inside your heart where you believe it's okay to fantasize about people that aren't your spouse. Like, pay attention to that. And every step of the way, what Jesus is doing is saying, like, it's great that you haven't done that in the external, but you, you're concerned about holiness. I want you to pay attention to what's going on inside of here because holiness begins in the heart. And it's exactly what Paul is getting at here in this text. He's saying, you want oneness. Well, oneness begins in here. It begins in the heart. Even this side of the new covenant, right? Hear me on this. We say, and we talk a lot about, hey, there's a new heart, right? This is one of the new things that God has done for us in the new covenant. And Paul addresses it here in verse 22. He says, you are taught to put off the old self. Why? Because it is still being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Even this side of faith, this side of the indwelling Holy Spirit, this side of the new covenant, the new heart that you have, it is still being corrupted by deceitful desires. And so go through the process of putting off the old, putting on the new, and the renewal of your mind. And so verse, jumping ahead to verse 31, here's what he says. He says, start here. Start here. Get rid of those things. 
Get rid of it. He says, all that bitterness, jumping ahead to 31, all that anger, all that rage that's inside of you, all the things that are often hidden that you don't know how to discern and be able to talk about or anything like that, all the brawling and the slander along with every form of malice. I love that one. He acknowledges, you know what? There's a whole lot of malice out there that can't just be wrapped up in one word. There's a spectrum of the ways that we go after one another, the passive aggressive attacks, right? I'm just gonna shun you ice cold. I'm not gonna talk to you. Like all the different things that, that are really malice and vengeful in ways. He's like, all those different forms, get rid of it. Bring it before the Lord your God in an honest desire to seek the truth and to realize, hey, there may be something going on inside of me and all of my feelings of righteous anger that I need to repent of, that I need to turn from. Father, would you examine this anger that's going on inside of me and show me what's at the root of it? It seems like it's continued to go on for a long, long time. Has it turned into bitterness? Am I constantly complaining and angry? Father, like, I, there's a root to that thing. What is it? Jesus, God, would you, would you reveal it to me so that I can lay it down before you and get rid of this thing, putting off the old and putting on the new? Like, what is it? Like, what's behind my social media posts? Right? You ever ask that question? Like, I know I feel right in this thing, and I know that person on the other side, like, they're the idiot, Right? Like, I, I know that's how it feels, and I know that how, that's how it seems. Do I want that person to come into faith and to glorify God? Do I even want them to repent, or do I want them to feel really, really dumb? What's behind my motivations, God? Because the world operates in a certain way that Jesus contradicts. And the believer comes into this thing, and in the middle of anger, they, they acknowledge it, they recognize it, and they say, well, okay, okay, there could be truth here. But I'm willing to bring it before the Lord and say, okay, God, is there anything in me that, needs, that is being contradicted by you? I want to turn from it. I want to repent of it. Why? That we can have oneness, not only in fellowship with one another, not only in your marriage or your friendship, your family, here at the church, nationally or anything like that, that I can be one with you again. We already are one, but God, that that relationship will be restored right there. And so I want you to understand that what he's saying right here is sometimes there is a righteous anger. There are times you're going to feel that thing, and you're going to come before the Lord, and you're going to be like, yeah, um, this is true. Martin Luther, he was right about that thing. He was alone in his dissension. He was right in his convictions. You can do that in your marriage. You can feel fully right and not fully be right. But to come, there will be times that you will be confirmed in some elements of truth right over here. I mean, we know that. Uh, Paul's going to say, 2 Timothy 3.16, he says, all scriptures God breathed, it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness of other people. So we're not talking about passivity. We're not talking about avoiding conflict or anything. We're about to get to that in a second. Uh, we're not talking about saying nothing, laying down, apologizing for everything, things of that nature. We're talking about dealing with real matters of truth. And there will be times that God reveals this thing in the context of maybe community and in his word, you are operating in truth. I mean, uh, Jesus in the temple, he turns over tables and stuff because he's seeing idolatry and he's seeing wickedness there. And I want to be very clear, we are not Jesus. We don't get to do the exact same thing that he does right there. The minor prophets, the entire minor prophets are rebuking the people of God for their sin. There is a time for confrontation. There is a time for direct, truthful talk done in love in a way that's God-glorifying in the end. It won't always work out well, but what he's saying is that that discernment is worth the time. I wish I could come and propose this formula that's always going to work, that's always going to bring about oneness and peace in the end, that's always going to prescribe that it's always being done, but I think that the formula here is 
that you begin by taking it to the Lord and saying, I want to be committed to the truth, but begin with me. It's not just with you out there. It's not just with the spouse that I'm angry at. Begin in here. Begin right here. And Father, that's how committed I am to the truth. Anything that's in here that needs to be brought out, we want to own. We want to deal with it. And so that's what he's saying right here. Sometimes James puts it like this. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you don't have, so you murder. You covet, and you can't obtain, and so you fight, and you quarrel. In other words, some of the time, the problem is simply you. And a person who's committed to the truth considers that truth. And we bring it before the Lord, and we say, okay, God, show me the truth. Allergies, in case you're wondering and stuff. Not COVID, anything weird like that. We got tested to make sure, but nothing going on. Um, he continues in verse 20. Uh, he continues actually in 27 here. He says, actually, I want to share this one. A friend of mine would always, ask, uh, would always ask our small group this incredible reflective question, and I love this question, but he would bring it to the group. And this would be a worthwhile question to ask your small group at some point in time, but he would always say this. He'd say, what is the, reve- what is the Holy Spirit revealed to you about your heart this past week? And maybe it's, you're not meeting weekly, maybe it's this past month, but he'd always ask this question. And I would challenge you, if you are in a group, maybe you bring it to your group and you say, okay, what is the Holy Spirit, what has the Lord revealed to you about your own heart this past month or so? Maybe 2020. Maybe you give yourself a break for 2020 because it's like we all need grace and stuff for that one. But what has the Lord revealed to you about your heart this past month? And remember, we would talk about it, and there would be all kinds of beautiful things come out. Like, I remember one time I was like, the Lord revealed to me that I'm actually greedy, even though I'm really, really poor. He showed that to me. Like, I fantasized about being out of a place for a long time. Other people shared, I'm really self-righteous, even when I judge other people for being really self-righteous. Some people talked about, I'm unforgiving, and I have held on to a lot of bitterness. I happen to be a people pleaser. This is the thing that God may be showing you or me or I lean on a title. I lean on an income level for my sense of security, for my value. Excuse me. <clears throat> I am more passionate about the cowboys than I am worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. We talk about this. And in the process of introspection, why is it that I can, I can celebrate and I can be more worshipful at a, at a stadium than I can be when I come into a church and I worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who's given his life for me? Other we talked about like I have more, I have stronger political convictions than I do biblical ones. Whoa. I am more loyal to my political affiliation than I am the truth of God's word to the point that I won't let it contradict my political convictions. That's a hard realization to come into, and you never will unless we come into this realization that says, I'm all about the truth of his word, even when it contradicts me even when it contradicts my own. Another way we ask about it, we say, what do the words, what do your words reveal about what's happening in your heart? Like if you had a book that was transcribed from every conversation of the past month, of the past year of your life, would it even be a Christian book? And these are good reflective questions that come back and say, God, I'm serious about this thing. I'm not just gonna talk about the banner of truth that we all talk about. Like I'm actually gonna live according to the truth. 
And so he keeps going and he says, like, this is at the heart of oneness. We want oneness. It's not a thing you just pray, hey, God, make us one. Uh, hey, God, give us unity or anything. Like, it's something that needs to be worked towards. There's got to be faith and action that comes out if we want that or anything. And he keeps going and he says, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold right here. And what he's not saying here is, um, in other words, I guess what he is saying right here is, make it a priority to pursue reconciliation. Like, don't delay reconciliation. He's not saying that you need to immediately go and don't go to sleep tonight if you're at odds with each other ever, right? If you get angry at midnight and, hey, you got to stay up all night and resolve it. It's not one of those literal 24-hour things. But he's saying, don't delay reconciliation. Make it such a high priority that you desire to be reconciled with the person you're at odds with. In other words, don't give in to your desire for vengeance and necessarily distance and shaming them or punitive damage, anything there. But like be so concerned with oneness and reconciliation that you actually don't delay it and you pursue it. In other words, don't keep processing for months and months and months and months and it's turned into years and years and years and years. I'm just not ready to have that confrontation yet. You know what I mean? There's a time to process. There's a time to bring it before the Lord. And what he's saying is be intentional in your, the ways that you process Bring it before the Lord and actually process. Don't just say I'm doing that. But he's saying don't delay reconciliation. Love your brother or sister. Love your spouse. Love your family member, your mom or your dad in such a way that you will go and pursue reconciliation. This past week I was meeting with a group of guys that I meet with and we were talking about some specific things and one of my friends shared a story of his best friend who um, at 10 years old, dad left. And he left for three months and he came back and the parents decided they didn't, that the kids weren't old enough to talk about it or anything like that. And he goes, that friend, just for the next number of years, for the next 10 years, bitterness rolled up as he began internalizing these messages. Hey, dad doesn't love me. He doesn't love her family. It was me that pushed them out the door. And he goes, it took 10 years before he was in counseling in college. And he finally came back to talk to his dad and to say, hey, the reason we are distant, the reason we have such pain and, and um, animosity in our relationship towards each other is because you left us. You don't love, you didn't care and all these different kinds of things. And when he, when, he, when he brought that out, his dad broke down in tears. And he's like, you, this whole time you thought that it was because I didn't love you. He's like, I was away getting treatment for cancer and I was dying. And I had this, that, and the other going on. We didn't want to worry. We didn't want to bring it up. And he's like, I'm so sorry that for 10 years I made you feel this way that I, he went there and like in a moment, of a conversation, people pursuing reconciliation, like there was, recon there was a healing that took place. Have any of you ever been in that kind of a situation where you realize later on, maybe someone that you love, years down the line, they come and say, hey, you know what? I've been angry and bitter at you for three years. And you're like, I felt it. I've seen that. We've been distant. Haven't I've been wondering, what kind of, I've, I've sensed a little thing. And they bring it to your attention, and then immediately you can deal with it, and there's love, and there's healing, and you've lost five, ten years of your life. What Paul's saying here, Christian, is be reconciled. Don't delay the reconciliation. Don't take the easy path of, you know what, I'm not going to deal with it. I'm not, I know it's a weird conversation, 
and I don't know fully how to deal with it here, but don't go down that path. Immediately be reconciled. But Jesus says the same thing, Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you're going to worship, you remember that somebody's got something against you. Go and leave what you're doing right there and go be reconciled with a brother or sister that you're in conflict with. It is that essential to oneness in our body, which communicates the oneness that God has given to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which results in the praise and glory of his name. That's where this is all coming from. And so maybe you could be there today. It could be that as we're talking about some of these things that God is bringing to mind, maybe it's a a child, maybe it is a kid, maybe it's a spouse or whoever it may be, and you've taken the path of least resistance and said, you know what, I don't want to deal with this at all. Would you allow the Holy Spirit to, maybe this is a phone call after this this sermon. Maybe Maybe it's a text message or an email to someone and you said, you know what, it's been too long. And you know what, you're going home and you're processing, you're saying, Father, what is my role in this whole thing? What is the truth of this whole thing? And that could be the thing that God is leading you to do as a result of this passage right here and the truth of his word. He keeps going and he says some, a weird thing in 828. He says, anyone who has uh, been stealing must steal no longer. So if you're stealing, stop it. Um, <laughs> but, but, but he says he must work. He says he must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. In other words, it's not so much that uh, you're going to have a great paycheck. It's all going to be about your personal security. He says work so that you're going to have money to care for people who are in need. I think that part's interesting. I'm not going to go down that path today or anything, but I think that's, that part's fascinating. He says get a job. If you can have a job, you need to, you need to move out and get a job, right? You need, to, you need to work. And it's not just so that you can pay your bills, so that you can continue to pour into um, people who are overlooked and to people who have a real need. And so he continues there, in practicality, he simply says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Only what's helpful for building up others according to their needs, that it can benefit those who listen. In other words, like, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And my applications of this, and I'm just going to say these are my applications right here, I simply think, no shame language, no always, never kind of language, no name-calling, threatening, sarcasm, patronizing talk. Talking down, abusive, domineering kind of a talk could be added to that list that happens quite a bit. Shame language. Brene Brown talks about this a whole lot. It's so much easier to repent from guilt language than it is shame language. And she draws up the distinction like this. Shame is the thing that says, I am something bad. Guilt is the thing that says, I've done something bad. Right? You know the difference right there? We understand it. We talk about it all the time around here. There is no shame in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul makes it clear in Romans 8. He says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and life. In other words, there is guilt to be dealt with, a conviction of the Holy Spirit, which is going to lead you to repentance. Right? It leads you to walk in newness of life with him. There is that. That's the thing that separates you from being a sociopath. Sociopaths are not able to acknowledge guilt or that they need to change or grow in any manner or anything like that. Guilt and shame is incredibly healthy. I'm sorry, guilt and, no, no, no. Guilt and conviction is incredibly healthy. Shame is not of the gospel. He's taking care of that. You've forgiven once and for all. You've been made brand new. You've been given the right to be called a child of God. There's a new designation in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, the difference between guilt and shame, and she says there is a, it is a lot easier to deal with guilt language than it is shame language there. You always, you never. This is who you actually are all the time. And so she continues, or he, he continues, and Paul does. He says, he says, it's not just unwholesome talk. Don't talk that way in the resolution of your conflict. But he says, uh, speak words that are building others up according to their needs, that it could be benefit to those who are listening. In other words, speak in such a way that when your kids are listening in on that conversation, they're lifted up. 
Speak in such a way to your wife, to your spouse, that when your kids are hearing what you're saying, you can still be faith, you, can, you can still honor the Lord in conversations with them, but they're not crippled in the end. Speak words of life to them. Speak words of life and truth. Step back off of the banner of unwholesome talk. Abraham Lincoln, um, I love this example. He was always known as the, one of the most peaceful presidents. But his advisors always said, the dude had anger. The guy had, he absolutely had anger, which you can imagine going through the time that he was leading in and stuff like that, the amount of opposition that he faced then. Like he, but the way that he processed that is he would take it and he would write out letters as kind of uh, imagining his opponents and the people that were saying th- terrible things. And he would write out all of his anger. And he would talk about it with his advisors and deal with, okay, how do I deal with this? And it would go on for a day, two days, or something like that. And then they would ask him, okay, what do you want to do with these letters? And he would wrap, he would crinkle it all up, and he'd throw it in the fireplace, and he said nothing. But he goes, what happened at that time was that, that, that something happened inside of his heart to where he was able to process through and let go to the point that he wasn't um, uh, unleashing all that unwholesome talk on his opponents at that time. And so he was able to speak in peace. And this is what James talks about in James chapter 3. He says, there is wisdom that comes from heaven. And he talks about this. He says, there's a wisdom that says, it is first of all pure. It is peace-loving, he says in verse 17. It's considerate. It is submissive. It is full of mercy, good fruit. It is impartial and sincere. In other words, it is wise to walk in these manners over here. And the reason it is wise in verse 18, I love this. He says, because peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. In other words, like people who sow in peace will typically get back more peace. People who sow in love, people who sow in mercy will typically get back mercy. People who are able to affirm other people, lift up other people, even their opponents in the moment of a conflict typically get that back in the end. And it's not prescriptive. It's not that it's always going to go perfect. But what he's saying right here is peacemakers who sow in peace will typically reap a harvest of righteousness. I remember this in my third grade teacher, Mrs. Smith, one of my favorites ever, one of the kindest, most loving teachers I ever had. I still remember her name, obviously. Of course, Smith is pretty common, but anyway. Um, there was four people in our class that were very, they were always causing trouble. They were very disruptive, very disrespectful to Mrs. Smith at the beginning of the semester. And we all sensed it and felt it. It was kind of weird and awkward and everything. And uh, Miss Smith never laid into them. She never, I mean, she did rebuke them and stuff, but she never laid into them. And I'll never forget this one day, she, had, she brought all of them. In the middle of what they were doing, it was really disruptive. She brought them all to the front, and we're like, ah, this is the time she's going to lay into them. And she just started affirming these kids. And I'm just going to make up these names. But she's like, Joey, like, you know what I love about you? You have conviction. You always think you're right. Like, and like, you have a conviction. Like you, and you stand up for the things that you think are right. <laughs> Granted, there's a flip side of that, but... I love that about you. And you go, Billy, like, you're a leader. People follow you, man. People follow whatever. They want to do whatever you're doing. Like, Sally, you're, you, you have a way of making other people feel included when you want to. <laughs> when you want to. <clears throat> you Sam, like, you're funny, man. You make jokes. Like, everybody loves laughing at you. And she just started affirming him. So I just wanted to tell you guys that. Can I tell you, like, that immediately changed the tenor of the year. Can you imagine what it would be like in your home if... Your methods of conflict switched from name-calling, animosity, only anger, and it, it, it changed into words of, of life. Can you imagine how it would change the dynamic with your children or with the family member, whoever it may be, that you began speaking truth into them and you start speaking love to them? And it's coming from a place of humility because you've already done the work and said, you know what, this could be me too. 
This could be me. There could be proponents of this conflict right here that are on me. May not be the whole thing. Sometimes it is the whole thing, right? But, but that requires discernment. But you can come through this thing and you can speak life into the other people. I'm telling you, church, it changed the tenor of that semester. And it's exactly what Paul is saying right here. You want oneness. It's not just prayed for and boom, it's just immediately happening. It requires work. There's intentionality that comes into this thing. And you have to speak life into people's lives. He keeps going and he says, um, verse 30 says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And I want you to notice that I don't want to move, I, I moved past this quickly in the last hour, and I don't think we need to because I think we need to understand that this grieves the Holy Spirit. That brokenness and disunity, the lack of oneness, malice, slander, anger, like the, the gossip, the, 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 the lies that are spread, right? The running and, 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 or not being willing to talk, it, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Unity and oneness is, is so essential to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Credibility is so tied in with this thing. He's just letting you know that this actually grieves. The heart of God, who spoke everything into existence, grieves over this matter. And so he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God has forgiven you. And this is where he lands the plane. That in the middle of whatever it may be, after you've dealt with the truth, after you've searched your heart, after you've spoken to that person, you've pursued reconciliation, words of life, not words of fury, you have to be willing at some point in time to let go and to forgive. Why? Because that's how God has operated towards you and me. Matthew 18, Peter asked Jesus, and he says, Jesus, all right, you talk a lot about forgiveness. Like, how much are we supposed to do that? Like, seven times? That's the perfect number. And you remember what Jesus says? <laughs> yeah, not that simple, bro. Up to seven times 70. It's like 409. No, it's more than that. One of my mentors a long time ago told me this. I think the reason, and of course he's just speculating, but he says, I think the reason Jesus says up to 70 times 7 is because forgiveness is one of those daily routines that we have to walk in all the time. It's not a thing that you get to go and sing about. It's not just a thing that you get to go and do one time a long time ago or that you get to do if they deserve it or you want to or you're feeling like it. He goes to this infinite scale because it's one of these things that we need to walk in day after day after day after day because it's exactly how God has treated us in Jesus Christ. He didn't just forgive your sins one time. He forgave your sins infinitely. Every single day, new offenses in your heart. You want to get real serious about holiness. It's not that you sin one time a month. I mean, it's like it is ongoing and over and over and over again, God lavishes grace and mercy and forgiveness and healing on you and on me. And he's saying, walk in such a way you cannot have oneness if you're unwilling to forgive someone who's offended you or hurt you or anything like that. I'll never forget one of my uh, first times that I ever walked through freedom prayer. It wasn't called freedom prayer back in the day when I was doing it, but... Um, 
basically began it about 10 years ago, and we, we bring that into the church. How many of you guys have ever, you know what Freedom Prayer is? You've heard of it? This is a process we invite people to be a part of here. You're welcome to make an appointment. You can meet with some members of the Freedom Prayer team, and you walk, we walk with you through prayer and specific forgiveness in a lot of ways that you could be set free from a lot of things that could be disrupting your soul. Um, they could be hang, they could be addictions. It could be all kinds of things. And uh, I remember the first time that I actually walked with someone through this. Uh, we're going through the process, and the process is very, very simple, but we simply, we give you a fun time at the beginning, essentially, where you get to say, hey, look, I want you to take a minute or two and express all of your anger to the Lord. He can handle it. He knows what's in your heart. The reasons why you're mad at your spouse or the reasons you're mad at your mom or your dad or whatever it may be, go and say that. And people, I remember this one encounter, like the, the guy I'm sitting with, he would just sit there and he said, he should have done this. He should have loved me. He should have loved, he should have been there. He should have said words, he should have been here. He should have gone to my game. He should have, he just went off and off and off. And we sat there and we paused for a little while. And then we sit there and we come back and we say, okay, I want you to sit there and for a moment where you are, think about how often God has forgiven you. And you just sit there in quietness as you actually take time and you think, oh my gosh, then, oh my gosh, then, that one, that interaction, that time that I was clearly in the wrong with my spouse, right? That time that I said that to my parents, that time that I said that to that life group. And you start, and you start thinking about it and we say, talk about this. Say these things out loud. Father, thank you for forgiving me for. And you start saying it. And you start saying it. I want you to, and the next step is you sit there and you say, I want you to picture Jesus upon the cross, his blood being shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And I want you to actually go there and to picture the cleansing that's taking place in the moment of Jesus suffering and dying, that you could be made clean and walk in newness of life with him. Actually go there. Don't just dismiss it or sing about it or not think about it. Intentionally go there. And I remember sitting there and every single time that it's done, in honesty, I would say, you come into that moment and you cannot help when you're reflecting upon the forgiveness and grace of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf and you're actually going there. How in the world do you hold on to unforgiveness with the people that you're, that you're at odds with? It doesn't happen very much and it's not prescriptive. It doesn't, it's in as much as you come in honesty, but, but you come before the Lord and you're saying, God, this is me. This is me. It ain't just them out there. It's not just her or him. It's me who needs forgiveness. And God, it's what you've done for me in Jesus. I'm telling you, it changes the tenor of a room when you understand how much you've been forgiven. And some of us, that's what you need to hold on to today. Let 2021 be a different kind of year because you're willing to let go through the context of these other things right here. And you're willing to actually give forgiveness and seek reconciliation with someone who has hurt you in the process. And not just in terms of, hey, they're the offenders always. Maybe that is the case. You don't know that apart from discernment. But to honestly come and say, Father, I want to be a person of truth. God, deal with me first according to the truth. And I hope in prayers that 2021 is different. that we'd have the oneness we talk about and we sing about, and that we would all move there understanding that it's something we walk in. It's not something that we just magically receive. May God free you 
of whatever unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, malice, wrath, slander may be inside you. May God forgive the person who's offended you. And may you love them as God has loved them. That we could be one again in your home, in your relationships, in the church, and in the country. All for the praise and for the glory of his name. Jesus, we love you, God. We give you glory. Lord, we honor you. We simply say thank you, Jesus, that you didn't stop forgiving us, God. 70 times 7 doesn't even begin to describe how much we've been forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Father, for all of those things, we simply say thank you. God, I pray for a person who came in today maybe a little bit more hardened. I pray that you would soften them today, Lord Jesus. God, that we would be a church that has a posture of constantly coming before you and saying, forget them, but first and foremost, but Father, would you look at me? Would you look at me? God, would that be our posture? Would that be our discipline? May we model humility and forgiveness all the time, Lord Jesus, that you would be lifted up in the end. Set someone free right now. Let it be specific for them, wherever it may be. Give them the courage to face it and run to it rather than away. God, we just tell you that we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.